Well, some of you know this year marked the 25th anniversary of the movie Back to the Future. If you are a Cubs fan, you know that for sure. Now, when I was a kid, this was like my favorite movie. In fact, I was so obsessed with it, my best friend and I actually tried to create a hoverboard. And it worked a little bit until we kept falling. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the movie, it centers on a character named Marty McFly. Marty grew up in a typical 1980s teenager growing up in a loser household, quite honestly with you. His father was a buffoon, his mother drank too much, and his siblings were classic underachievers. And it all started back when his parents were teenagers when his father was humiliated in front of the whole school by the school bully. His name was Biff. But in the movie, Marty is accidentally sent back to 1955, and while there, he rearranges the whole story so that his father is the one who humiliates Biff. Going back to 1985, their whole family life has changed. His father is living in a mansion with his family. He's a famous wealth author and guest who is waxing the family's cars out in the driveway. Biff. Steven Spielberg and his friends, they came up with a great storyline, but I want to tell you, it had been done before. You see, after thousands of years of humiliation at the hands of a bully named Satan, Jesus came back to the future, so to speak, to rewrite not just his family's story, but all of human history. Jesus came to face the bully that we could not face on our own. Some of you have learned this, that no matter how hard we try, we can't beat the bully. But Jesus came to defeat him so that we can be empowered to do so as well. Like Marty McFly, he has rewritten the entire story of human history. And it's to that story we want to look this morning. If you're wondering what Back to the Future has to do with church, well, we're in the beginnings of a series in our church called The Life of Christ. And we're walking through the Gospel of Luke because we want to spend time with Jesus. Again, we want to learn from Jesus because we want, to, we want to become like him. Really, that's what we've been saying throughout this series. If you wouldn't mind reading this sentence, just to remind ourselves again what the purpose of this series is. Read this out loud with me on the screen. It says, we want to be with Jesus so we can learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. So we're going to the source. We're going to the life of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to learn from Jesus how he faced temptation against the devil. And how we can then be like him when Satan comes to tempt us as well. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn it to Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And if you didn't bring your own Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we always have some in the seat underneath you or somewhere around you. There should be a Bible available for you. And you can find Luke chapter 4, verse 1 on page 717. Now, here's my plan for this morning. I'm going to break down this really important text in three ways. First, I want to talk about why it was necessary for Jesus even to be tempted. Hint, it has something to do with back to the future. Second, I want to look at the actual temptations and what we can learn from them. And then finally, I want to talk about what the temptation of Jesus means for us today. Sound like a good plan? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do need you. We need you to open up our eyes and open up our hearts, to open up your word, for it to be living and breathing once again to us. Would you show us what you want to show us in this passage this morning? And would it not only just be information in our head, but would it move into our heart and would it change the way we live? We pray this for your sake, for your kingdom's sake. Amen. 
Well, if you were here last week, uh, you heard me mention that this little section we're in, Luke, right now, with Jesus' baptism, his genealogy, and now his temptation this morning are some of the most important passages, theologically speaking, in all of the Gospels, because in them, Luke is revealing some really important things about the identity of Jesus, who he is, and the purpose of Jesus, why he came. And we learned last week in his baptism and genealogy, Jesus is revealed. He had been kind of hidden for the first 30 years of his life, but he comes to be baptized, and at that moment, he's revealed as the Messiah, right? The anointed one, the one the people, the Jewish people had been waiting for. And the way he is going to take his kingship is as a suffering king. You remember the words the Father spoke to him, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Direct quotes from the Old Testament showing Jesus, this is the path you're going to take to kingship. You are going to be the suffering service. And Jesus does this He does this, if you recall, by fully identifying with us in our human condition. All that means is he became fully human. He had to. It was part of God's plan, part of his design. That's why Luke traces Jesus' genealogy. Just look back at verse uh, chapter 3, verse 38 there. He traces Jesus' genealogy genealogy all the way back. That's a hard word to say. All the way back to who? Adam. He traces it all the way back to Adam. This is really significant here. What he's trying to get us to understand is that in Jesus, we have the new Adam. We have the new Adam. And as the new Adam, Jesus had to face what we face and have failed ever since the first Adam failed. He's going right back to the beginning, right? Right back to square run. In Eden, the head of the human race was confronted by the tempter and he failed miserably. He disobeyed and set the whole world askew. But now comes the second Adam going back to the future, so to speak, and he will confront the same tempter. So I just want you to understand what the stakes are here. The stakes are enormous. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be tempted, or that word can also mean tested? Well, because as you well know, if you're a human being, I think we all are, temptation is a part of our daily life as human beings, isn't it? We are always being confronted with temptation. So for Jesus to be fully human, For him to fulfill his role as the new Adam, he had to face temptation. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Listen, Jesus came to undo what Adam did. If he can resist where Adam and Eve did not, then humanity can have a new beginning. We can have a new start. It's extremely important that Jesus lives the life of a perfect human being in order that we might be made perfect by his life and his sacrifice. So that's why Jesus needed to be tempted. But I want to mention another reason as well. I hope you don't miss this. As we're going to see, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit of God for 40 days. Question, who else is led into the wilderness by God? Think back. The people of Israel, right? After they failed to enter into the promised land, they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the wilderness, this is important, they faced, just like Adam and Eve did, the same three temptations that are common to all of man. And they failed again and again, just like we do. So it's no accident when the tempter comes to face Jesus, Jesus actually quotes from Deuteronomy which is the story of Israel's failure. So listen, why was it necessary for Jesus to be tempted? If I could just say it in one sentence, it's because he's attempting to go back to the future and succeed where both Adam and Israel failed. 
if he succeeds, paradise or the promised land will be opened once again to God's people. So that's what's at stake here. No big deal. Pretty much all of our hope, all of our future rests on this confrontation with Satan. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 and read them out loud with me on your notes there. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And verse 2 finishes, he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, there's so much packed in these two little verses. If you recall, at his baptism, we're told that the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus. It descended upon him like a dove. And I tried to make the point there. That's not like Jesus was seized by some external power, right? It's not like, oh, all of a sudden, he then had the Holy Spirit. It's, the purpose of that was to show us that he has been anointed by God and empowered by God for a special task, a divinely appointed task. He is the new Adam. He is the suffering king. And the first thing the Spirit does, notice this, is lead him into the wilderness. Have you learned this to be true as a follower of Christ yet? That God's Spirit will often lead believers, just like he did Jesus, into places that will test and stretch our faith. You see, it's through these crucibles of our life that God will refine us. He will grow our faith in him and our character in him so that he can use us more effectively to advance his kingdom. Friends, this is such an important point. Every Christmas, our family used to gather and we would watch The Sound of Music together. Some of you have seen that, I hope. There's a song in there called Something Good. And in that song, you think I'm gonna sing, but I'm really not gonna sing. <laughs> Maria says, why is my life going so well? Why are good things happening to me? And then you get to the main point of the song, and she says, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And isn't that what we think sometimes? Because my life is going well, because my life is going better than your life, I must be doing something good. Or because my life is really hard right now, or because something is wrong in my life, it's not as good as yours, I must be doing something wrong. But here we have the exact opposite. The more the Spirit of God pours his, the more God pours his Spirit into your life, listen, be ready. There will be more conflict and temptation and strife. Why? Why? Because God doesn't like us? No, because his whole goal for us is to become like who? It's to become like Jesus. The whole goal of this series is to spend time with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to be like Jesus. And there's no better place to learn from Jesus than in the wilderness, how to be like Jesus. Tim Keller puts it this way, if your life is absolutely spiritually tranquil, if it's comfortable, if it, there is no conflict inside and there is no conflict outside, it's because you're not being led by the Spirit. You're not attempting great things for God. You're not even attempting to be pleasing to God. Anybody who says, I'm going to please God, I'm going to give him every bit of pleasure I possibly can, will experience conflict. Anyone who offers you a Christianity without tears is not giving you good money. It's counterfeit. True Christianity is a fight. Friends, the Spirit will lead us into the wilderness to refine us. But the promise is that he is with us each step of the way. Each step of the way. Here the Spirit takes Jesus into the physical wilderness. Now, I don't know what you're picturing when you read this story, right? Like, what kind of wilderness are you picturing here? I hope you're not picturing some idyllic retreat that Jesus is going on off in the woods for 40 days. 
Deuteronomy describes the actual wilderness that Jesus would have been in. It says, he led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. Some people have described the place Jesus went as the anti-Eden. It's the opposite of Eden. On top of that, we learned in verses 1 and 2 that Jesus is fasting during this entire time. In the Bible, fasting is a means of humility that opens ourselves up to receive something from God. The whole illusion suggests here that this is before Jesus started his ministry. And so he's emptying himself so that he can be filled and empowered for God's guidance and God's task. I love how honest Luke is here at the end of verse 2. What does he say? He's hungry. Do you believe that? I think so many people still in the church think that Jesus was Superman disguising himself as Clark Kent. No. Fully human. Experiencing everything we would feel. He's pushing himself to the limit of human endurance in this story. He's really experiencing it just like you would if you were there. 40 days. And that's when the enemy chooses to attack. This is a dangerous moment for the future of humankind. How is Jesus going to fare against Satan's attacks? Will he succumb like Israel and Adam did, or is he going to succeed where they failed? Let's take a closer look at the showdown in the wilderness. Now, I'm not exactly sure what you think here. If Satan showed up in an actual person, or if he just shows up in Jesus' mind, as he does so often with us, giving Jesus different thoughts and so forth. But the main thought I want you to take away with is that in each of these temptations, none of them of themselves are bad things. So often we want to think of temptations as these really bad things. Actually, can I change your mind about that? They're usually good things. They're usually good things. They're just not the things we need to be doing right now. Or not necessarily the thing God wants for us right now. J.C. Ryle, the Bishop of England, once said, We are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I am your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh, no. Sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss. Sin rarely seems like sin at first. It's why it's so hard. It's why it's so hard. You'll see what I mean here. The first temptation comes in verse 3 again. At the point of his greatest weakness, fasting for 40 days, it says in verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What a genius. Don't think for a minute Satan's dumb. He is tempting Jesus with his most basic and immediate need right now, food. Here was the point I was trying to make. Is there anything wrong with food? Is food bad? No, of course not. Bread is a good thing. But at this moment, bread is not what the father had in mind for his son. Jesus was fasting. He was abstaining from food. In order to focus on God, it's not time for him to eat bread yet. So Satan here comes along, basing his appeal on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, right? We just heard that at his baptism. Like, hey, if you're the Son of God, why are you putting yourself through this? Turn this stone into bread. Go ahead and eat. Do what you want to do most right now. Does Satan ever do that with us? Does he ever lure us to want things that we're not meant to have or to have them when we're not meant to have them? Sometimes he tempts us with food too, doesn't he? Too much food, the wrong kind of food, food for ourselves instead of food for the hungry, but he can tempt us with just about anything. 
nicer clothes, a newer car, cooler technology. Again, are any of these things wrong? No. They're good things. Unless they are giving us a detour away from God's plan for our lives. We might have to, for example, compromise our integrity to get some of those things. That wouldn't be God's plan for me. We might have to work too many hours to satisfy our needs. That isn't God's plan for me. We might have to give less to God and less to others so that we can have more to spend on ourselves. Sometimes, even if we can't have those things, the mere desire for them can rob us of joy, right? It leads me to things like envy and jealousy because, well, they have it. This is the same trick that Satan used on Adam and Eve. The fruit was good for food. It was good for food. It's not like rotten. It was good. And that may be true, but were they supposed to have it? No. Are you ever tempted to want something, to grab something, to grasp for something that you were not meant to have? It's that thing, right? That thing we think is going to satisfy us. This is the thing that's going to satisfy my soul. Some have called this the temptation of provision. It just means taking matters into my own hands to fulfill my desires instead of trusting God to meet my needs. Adam and Eve literally took matters into their own hands. They took the fruit. The Israelites were constantly complaining about the fact that God didn't provide for them, even though, did he provide for their needs? Absolutely. Let's see how the new Adam responds. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Direct quote from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, even though that's a legitimate desire for me to eat, it is not what my Father has for me right now. And so I'm going to trust that the Father is going to meet my needs instead of meeting them myself. Friends, our temptation may not be to turn stones into bread. I wish I could. However, we will regularly be tempted to go beyond the parameters of God's word to satisfy our desires rather than trusting God to meet them for us. We become graspers and schemers and we plan for our well-being because I'm not sure God's going to take care of me, at least the way I want him to take care of me. We are just like the Israelites. We're just like Adam and Eve who didn't trust God's provision and yet Jesus shows us a new way here. We can trust God to provide for us. We just sang a song called The Names of God. Did you know one of his names is? The God who provides. The second temptation comes in verses 5 through 7. It says, The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. What is Satan tempting Jesus with here? He's tempting him with power, right? To be an earthly king, to have all the cities and the nations bow down to him. The problem is that is not the kind of king Jesus came to be. As we saw last week, he came to be the suffering king. It's like an oxymoron. He wasn't here to set up an earthly kingdom, at least not yet. He was here to set up a heavenly kingdom. The lure here is for power. Really, as I dissect this, what Satan is really getting at here is, listen, you are the king. Is that true? Is this a bad idea for Jesus to be king? No, it's a pretty good idea. And one day he will be king and every nation will bow down at his feet. But what he's trying to get him to do is take a shortcut. Be a shortcut savior. Why do you want to put yourself through all this betrayal, all this suffering, all this hardship when I can give it to you now? 
All you have to do is worship me. Will Satan come to us in the same way? You bet he will. And again, the offers aren't always evil. Satan will tempt us to be things we're not meant to be, to do things we're not meant to be. He might tempt us to be popular, to be famous, to be powerful, to be successful, to be comfortable. Is there anything wrong with any of those things? I'm going to keep hammering this home. No. Sometimes, by God's grace, they're included in our life. However, when they become ultimate things, when we think those are the things that are going to bring me happiness, then they lead us off the path of faithfulness. And so oftentimes what I do is I run around God's plan for me, I run ahead of God's plan for me, or even walk away from God's plan for me in order to achieve my goals, my aims, my happiness. Some have called this the temptation of power. Again, it's the same temptation Adam and Eve faced. You can be like God. You just eat this, and you can be like God. God's holding back on you. Don't you want to be the God of your own life? Ultimately, where does that lead us? It leads us to idolatry. Making ourselves the center of worship instead of making him the center of worship. Israel was told, you must worship the Lord your God alone. Oh, how many times did they seek power from someone else or from somewhere else? How will Jesus fare with this temptation of power? Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, Deuteronomy, quoting from Deuteronomy 6. Jesus stands firm in his allegiance to serve God alone. There's going to be no compromise in his ministry. He knows where the true power comes from. Power doesn't come from what Satan can offer us. Power comes from serving his God faithfully only. Jesus refuses to take the easy way. Third temptation is found in verses 9 through 12. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, the highest point in the temple would have been the most visible place in all of Jerusalem, right? Throwing yourself off of the temple and being caught by an angel would create quite a stir. It would make quite an impression on the very people Jesus came to minister to, the very people he came to save. In fact, many people believed during this time that when the prophet came, when the, the Messiah came, that they would, he would come with all kinds of extraordinary feats. Well, here you go. This would be quite extraordinary. It would be a good thing. It would impress the very people Jesus came to serve. This time, Satan even tries to convince Jesus by throwing scripture at him, twisting its meaning. What a sobering thought that is, huh? Quoting directly from Psalm 91 to support his request, this psalm describes God's protection for those who trust him. This is an old tactic Satan uses, by the way. He used it with Adam and Eve, right? When he says, did God really say? Is that what his word really said? You sure? You don't want to question that a little bit? I love what Satan's doing here. He's a genius. Well, I don't love it, but you know what I mean. It's like, hey, you're going to quote scripture back to me? You really believe that strongly in the word of God? Fine. Obey this. Of course, God does say he will protect his children, but he didn't say he'd protect them from every single stupid thing they did. Especially not from reckless things or presumptuous things that serve our own purposes. Right? But how often do we do this? Again and again, I say, oh, I know this is outside of the bounds of your word. And then I find myself 
reaping the consequences of the choice I made, and I say, God, can you sprinkle fairy dust on me now and get me out of this? Some people have called this the temptation of approval. In Genesis 3, the fruit is described as pleasing to the eye. What this means is that if something looks good to us, it must be good. It must be good for us. Even more, look, if I look good to you, if I'm approved by others, then I can be sure of my identity. And so Satan tries to get us to be things or to do things outside of God's will and outside of God's plan for us so that we can please others. But jumping off of a roof in order to test God's promises, that's not a part of God's will for Jesus. That's not how Jesus came to win the hearts of people. He would take the path of obedience and suffering to gain God's approval, not a quick moment of glory. Does Satan also tempt us to do things we're not meant to do or be things we're not meant to be using approval as his weapon? Anybody here relating to this? Like how often am I caring more what other people think than I'm caring about the one, what the one person I should care most about thinks about me? Again, it's not a bad thing to be loved and liked and respected in life. But if that becomes the driving motivation of my life, if I'm seeking other people's approval instead of approval from the Lord, well, then I'll be going down the wrong path. Listen, every time I stand up here, this is a temptation I face, right? I really want you all to like this message. Do you approve? I've got to die to that. I've got to die to that because I'm not here to approve, get your approval to be affirmed by you. I'm, I'm here to serve the Lord who has called me to do this. Again, looking to Deuteronomy and the failure of Israel, Jesus responds in verse 12, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't test the limits of God's boundaries just to gain somebody else's approval. And then this passage closes with these words in verse 13, when the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And I love it. We're going to see it next week. Jesus passes the test, and now he's going to go on the attack against this tormentor of humankind. He did what no human being had ever done before. And as we close this morning, I want to talk about what his passing the test means for us. Friends, the reason this is such an important passage of Scripture is because unless this is true, unless this really happened, that Jesus lived the perfect human life, that he faced every temptation that is common to man, then we're still stuck under Adam's curse. But if it is true, we can have a whole new life and a whole new beginning. My temptation, pardon the pun here, in a message like this, is to simply move on and talk to you now about the example Jesus gives us in his temptation. Like, here's how you can be like Jesus in temptation. And while that's certainly something we're going to look at in a little bit, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that, and you can't miss this. Jesus came to take your place, not just to be an example. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He came as the new Adam. He came to take the curse that we deserve so that we could receive the blessing he deserves. If he didn't pass this test, here are the stakes. Not one of us could stand before the Father. But because he did, you and I can stand before him and say, Father, do not accept me because of my record against temptation, because it's not very good. Accept me based on his record of temptation, because that is the gift he has come to give me. That's why we call this the gospel, which means the good news. In Romans 5, Paul says it this way. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of the, that one man's sin. 
For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. If there was ever a time for an amen, that would be it right there. And I was actually like giving you the opportunity here. So I'll, I'll just, I'll read the end there here. Get ready. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Are you excited about that? That when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you as cursed. If you are in Christ, he sees you as his righteousness. You stand before him and you can hear the words, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. He did for you what you could not do on your own. The whole point of the temptation story is that he undid what we couldn't do. He undid what Adam did. So first and foremost, what the temptation means for us is we're no longer under Adam's curse. We've been given a new name, new righteousness, new life. What I could not do on my own, he has done for me. If you're following on your notes there, because Jesus passed the test, he becomes our righteousness. I've said it this way for years in our church. When the father looks at you, what does he see if you're in Christ? He sees his son. Not a failure, not a sinner, he sees his righteous son. Amen. But that's not all the temptation story means for us. It also does mean that because Jesus faced all temptation common to man, we can actually face it now, and we can resist it and even have victory over it. Would you read Hebrews 2.18 on your notes there with me? It says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What does that mean? It means because Jesus resisted these temptations as a real man, he can help us to resist them too. Or if you're following there, because Jesus passed the test, he becomes our example. And what is the example Jesus gives us in facing these temptations? How can we experience victory in our lives? I'm going to mention two things on your notes here. Number one, by being filled or by walking in the Spirit. Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. He walked in the Spirit. Number two, by training in the same spiritual disciplines that he did. Let's take a closer look at these. The promise of the Bible is that the same spirit that empowered Jesus at his baptism in order to fulfill his mission here on earth is available to any person who professes Christ as Lord. Paul says this is the mystery of the gospel, right? Christ in me, the hope of glory. Have you learned yet in your own life that willpower is not enough? to defeat temptation. We need the Spirit of God empowering us and equipping us, and the promise of the New Testament is if you are in Christ, then you have the very same Spirit that helped Jesus helping you. And you can learn how to walk in step with the Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul says this, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and he is, if you're a follower of Christ, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. He wants to help you because of his spirit who lives in you. Or read Galatians 5.25 there on your notes. It says, since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. So that leads to the obvious question. Well, how do I keep in step with the spirit? How do I walk in the same spirit that Jesus walked in my life? Here is what the answer is not. 
It is not to try harder to be like Jesus. Have you ever gone down that path? Frustration city. The answer is to train in the same things that he trained himself in. There's a huge difference between trying and training. Listen, if I asked you, the average person here at Cherry Hills, to run a marathon next week, how well do you think that would go? Let's just say you tried really hard, too. How well would that go for you? I mean, you could push yourself to the absolute limit, but the simple physiological fact is that most of us in this room could not run 26.2 miles next Saturday. However, most of us could, over time, through training, gradually increase the amount of running we did so that we could, over a stretch of weeks and maybe even months, we could run 26.2 miles without stopping. And it's the same way with temptation. It's not by trying harder that you're going to defeat Satan. It's by training, by building spiritual muscles in your life that can enable you to confront it when it comes, and it will come. You can only do it by becoming the kind of person who normally and routinely is doing the kind of things that God is wanting us to do, the things that Jesus did. Sung to the author of The Art of War said, every battle is won before it is fought. Do you don't think that's true about spiritual battles as well? Is the battle won before it's fought? I believe it is. And the way you do that is by training in the spiritual disciplines, the same disciplines Jesus trained himself in. You're like, what is he talking about right now? Well, just think back over the story that we've read. The Spirit led him out into the wilderness. Some might call that the discipline of solitude. And he spent time in silence there. He fasted. Right? He abstained from food in order to open himself up to the work and person of God. I guarantee you he was constantly in communion, in prayer with his father. And how did he respond every time Satan tempted him? With the word of God. That he had hidden in his heart. These are the disciplines of our faith. I mean, there's more, but he had filled himself with these, right? Fasting, silence, solitude, prayer, hiding God's word on our heart. These are gifts God gives his children. To help us live according to the way Jesus lived. To be like Jesus, which is the whole goal of our life. They are called spiritual disciplines for a reason, right? They are disciplines of the Spirit. I wonder if Jesus had not ordered his life around these practices, what this story might have looked like. Again, we still think, oh, he was Superman. He could have done it anyway. I don't know. He was fully human. And yet he had prepared himself for this day. He was ready when temptation came. He was able to stand strong, and that same strength is available to you. You can be ready. You can find the strength to walk in victory if you order your life around these practices of Jesus. Just think about it. Let's think about those three temptations. Look, if you can say food, no to food for a time, or whatever it is that thing that you desire that you think is going to satisfy your life, like if you can just say no to that for a time, don't you think that when the sin of provision, the temptation of provision comes, you're going to be better equipped? Or how about if you're spending daily time with the Lord in his word and in prayer, if that's where you're receiving your power each day, when that sin of power comes, when that temptation to grasp, to scheme, to be my own God comes, don't you think you'll be better equipped to resist? Or solitude and silence. Oh man, do we need this in our culture today? So much noise. No wonder I want the approval 
of others. But don't you think if I sat myself just a little bit each day in solitude and silence, I would care more about what the Father is saying to me than what about anybody else is saying about me? These disciplines train us to be ready for these temptations. It is the way. It is the way you learn to walk in the Spirit. And when you do that, you're truly learning from Jesus how to be like Jesus. So we're going to do something we do often in our church family now. We're going to have a time just of reflection. We've heard God's word. We've been fed. But God doesn't want his word just to be static. He wants us to take it, to internalize it, and oftentimes to do something with it. And so we're going to have just a time to quiet ourselves, to allow the Lord to speak to us personally and individually at our seats right now. And I ask this question on your notes there, and this is what I'd like you to be thinking about. Where or how is the Spirit leading me to train for temptation? Where or how is the Spirit leading me to train for temptation? Let's just take a moment of time to consider what we've heard. Nothing becomes dynamic in our lives until it becomes specific. Is there something specific? You know, he's leading you to do or to be. Maybe you're struggling with that sin of provision. Meeting your own needs instead of trusting him to meet them. What would be his word to you? What would training and fasting maybe look like? Or maybe you're a grasper. You're going after the power that this world offers. What does it look like to receive your power from him each and every day? To live according to his plan and his purposes. Or maybe you sense that struggle for other people's approval and you live for that. Maybe he just wants to say to you this morning, you are my son, you are my daughter whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Oh Lord, sometimes thank you doesn't seem like enough. 
What can we say? He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't deserve it, but you gave it to us. And because you did, we want to live our lives as an offering unto you. We want to be pleasing to you, and we recognize that sometimes that means you're going to lead us into the wilderness. But you have given us your spirit, even in those times, to lead us and direct us. Teach us, once again, to walk in your spirit. Give us a new filling this morning. Fill us afresh. Empower us. Encourage us. And Lord, let us set our lives to the task of training ourselves for righteousness in the same way that Jesus did. Not trying really hard to be righteous, but training ourselves with the gifts you've given us. We look to you now. We want to live for you. Thank you. Amen.